Thanks for listening to the new Turn of the Tide podcast, where we discuss cutting-edge research on climate change, oceans, and the environment. This show will feature work by early career scientists from grad students to postdocs, new faculty, and non-academics who are making waves with bold research questions, innovative methods, and big solutions. Welcome back to Turn of the Tide with your hosts, Alyssa Frederick, Evelyn Valdez-Ward, Lenon Cat, and Michelle Herrera. So today we're going to be talking about barriers specific to women in science, um, and we're going to format our episode in a few different arenas. So we're going to talk about teaching, specifically uh, being a teaching assistant, so TAing in, in science, research, and how we deal with issues specifically to women in science and research, social media, and social situations. Um, and how women have experienced sexism and biases in those specific arenas. Um, so first, we're going to talk about teaching and TAing. Um, and I think, Michelle, you want to start off with that? So I've had some discussions lately with other female TAs that they might be getting treated differently uh, compared to their male counterparts. And there could be a few different ways that this could happen when they teach. Um, for instance, students could uh, treat them differently by giving them a harder time, um, just continually asking them about their grades through emails, um, or students even giving the TAs a pat on the back um, that probably was unwelcome. Um, and I was wondering if any of you have had similar experiences being a female TA, um, if you've feel like you faced any uh, discrimination based on your gender? Looking back, and I get a lot of emails with a lot of students that try to get away with a lot of stuff, but talking to someone who TA'd the previous section, who is a male, he did not get these kinds of emails. And I feel like a lot of people didn't try to get away with things. And I don't know if that has to do with me being a woman, or is this because this quarter is different, but I just think it's really weird um, how demanding some students can. I guess they think that I'm just going to easily like be a pushover somehow. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. There's an expectation that you'll be maternal, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Well, similar to like the emails that you would receive, I receive emails being like, why did you gave me so harshly on this? You're hindering my graduation. And I would ask my, the other male TAs that TA during the same quarter and they're like, oh, I've never had that kind of email before. And I don't think I'm a strict grader either. I'm grading them. I'm giving them the grade that they deserve, basically. Um, and we, we, we have numbers, right, to back these things up, right, where we have, you can look at what TAs grade each quarter, and the faculty member who's responsible for that course can say you've graded them much mm -hmm. harder than previous quarters, you know, boost everyone by three points. Right. And that doesn't happen, and yet we still have these weird feedbacks from students that demand that we go easier on them. Um, and I think that what some of what I'm hearing too is that there's a there's consistent self-doubt. So regardless of whether or not that is a real phenomenon, like are we grading harder or are we grading easier? Um, there's consistent self-doubt that is this interaction because of my gender? <laughs> um, is it are they taking advantage of me specifically because I'm a woman? Um, and I don't, you seem like you have... Well, I'll give you an example. Like, a lot of what the students are trying to get away with, they only email me. 
And they won't email the professor. Who, who's, a, who's a male. Yeah, who's a male. Who I feel like would probably be way more lenient than I'm being. <laughs> but they, like, don't CC him on anything. And I'm always going up to him, like, oh, like, I got this email. This is what I said. And he kind of always, like, is not really on the same page. But still, like, why don't they just go to him? Why do they have to go through me? I wonder if it'd be different if I was, like, a male. I don't know. I've never had that experience. Have you ever... Um, so it's a, it's a well-known phenomenon with reviews, right? That women experience harsher reviews for the same courses and more things based on their personality versus their professionalism, in, especially when they're academics teaching classes. Um, I know Michelle was talking lately. She was browsing GitHub and found something interesting. Yeah, so... I found out that for GitHub, which is um, it's a, basically a software open source uh, program that people can go to to grab code off of, um, there was a study that found that codes that were authored by women, when they used their gender neutral profiles, 71.8% were approved by GitHub. But when they identify their gender, that dropped to 62.5%, so more than 10% drop when they actually identify their gender. And when they use their gender-neutral profiles, uh, their code was actually approved at a higher rate than males. Um, so I thought that was really interesting that once the women identify their gender, um, their code was just not approved at a higher rate anymore. Um, so as I used GitHub a lot throughout my research to pull code off of for the work that I do, um, I think it's important to actually make that conscious effort to look at the code and see if it's actually more efficient um, rather than looking at the author's names and making an effort to actually support women over men. I think there's an interesting implication that neutral names get approved at a higher rate than male sounding names and of course the female sounding names because um, it's an interesting solution as a woman you could make yourself neutral on github but then no one's really going to think about how a woman is publishing this code so for you you're doing better because more people are looking at your code but then nothing changes in terms of our implicit bias because there's no like constant reinforcement that, oh, a woman can make code that's as good as men. So that's really interesting. And it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't address the, the problem. It's just a band-aid. Right, exactly. Like it helps you in that one situation, but there's no. And this is one symptom of a, of a big problem where the, the underlying disease needs to be addressed, not just the symptoms. Um, so do you, uh, so, so GitHub is one example of where men are cited more than women, or I guess um, where women's data is viewed less favorably or less usefully than men's. Um, but there are other examples of differences in citations and self-citations, right? Yeah, so men self-cite 70% more than women do. Um, so that's citing your own work. Right, that's citing your own research, and you can find that in King et al. 2017. That's a bit surprising. Um, so, yeah, it's not only that men use women's stuff 
less, it's they also just like to use their own stuff a lot, which is hilarious. And <laughs> or either that, or I mean, it's probably a combination of of that and women not feeling <laughs> confident to do that themselves. Yeah, um, and feeling like probably. I mean, personally, I feel like what would happen if I did that was that it would be viewed as um, kind of like snobbish or um, bitchy to cite my own when I could cite someone else's. But I don't think that male colleagues probably worry about that, <laughs> about that impression. Um, yeah. So what are we supposed to do when we publish? Use neutral names? Like, should we change our names? Or like, should journals just publish first two initials? I mean, it's an, it's an, I guess the discussion that we're having is this interesting one of self-preservation versus changing societal biases. Um, and I think probably, you know, right, this problem if, exists long beyond our lifespan. Right. If we do the initials, then people just assume everyone's a man. I mean, even I've caught myself doing that before. Sometimes I haven't seen the first name of an author and I just assume in my head it's a man and then I feel mm. kind of guilty when I'm like, oh shit, I'm doing this too, so... Yeah. So um, one of the other or two of the other topics that we really wanted to hit on today were about uh, social media and social situations. Um, I actually think that jumping from research into the social situations probably um, makes more sense. So um, talking about social situations at work, right? And we all like to think that like professionalism is just, you know, going to work and sitting down at your desk and doing your work. But science is one of the many fields where that's not really a reality and that a lot of our interactions are um, in the hallway or at happy hours after work. Um, and I think science can be a little unique in uh, the way that we interact socially because so much of our work is defined by, or so much who we are seems to be defined by what we do and what our work is. And so we have this kind of gray zone where a lot of social of social life is, is kind of blurry with professional life. Um, and uh, so, so how have you seen this kind of manifest itself? Um, so even though happy hours seem like really you know, just like a time to unwind, kind of complain about your day. Um, they can actually be times where you get information about what's going on. Um, so networking, information on what's happening with that thing in the lab two doors down that might actually be really helpful to your research. Um, and women can often be excluded from these happy hour events. So men sometimes assume that women aren't interested in going because it's either a sporting event or it's sports itself or drinking beers and they just don't even bother asking even though they don't actually know if a woman wants to go or not. Um, so we just suggest that men ask women to attend happy hour events. If you're going with your coworkers and you have female coworkers, invite them because they might have perspectives and information that might interest you and you should definitely share that with them. I mean, it's only beneficial to everyone in the long run. Um, I know me personally, the microbial ecology group at UCI goes out to happy hours every single week. Um, we're really inclusive and 
there have been like papers and commentary ideas that like come out of these events. And if you exclude women from those, they're not co-authors on those papers. They don't offer insight on those papers. They can't um, offer their expertise in certain techniques or ideas to those papers. So um, it's really important to be inclusive of everyone for those events. And you know, that person can say no, but at least invite them. So just to touch kind of on the social aspect, I don't know if you've all experienced it, but when I wear like a nice outfit and I'm talking to someone, usually men, they'll like interrupt my conversation when I'm trying to say something and comment on my outfit or comment on my earrings or my or if I do my makeup that day or something. And it's like, really, that's what you're focusing on? Like, I'm trying to talk about something else. I don't know if you've ever like experienced that. So sometimes when I want to be taken more seriously, I have to dress like... I have to really think about what I'm going to wear that day. Like, do I actually want to wear a dress and look cute? Like, do I tone down my makeup to be taken seriously? Have any of you experienced that? Well, yes, yeah, similar things. Like, oh, if you've dressed up, it's definitely, like, for a dude. Like, you're trying to impress a guy. Yeah. But I'm like, no. I'm Ooh, just, where are you going? Yeah, like, I just want to feel and look good at work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just we're all sitting here kind of eye rolling that interaction because we've all experienced yeah, there's like a whole can of worms with that oh my god um, yeah I think that um, it kind of extends into like beyond inviting um, people to happy hour but like um, you know joining sports teams and things like that um, which you kind of talked about yeah, a little like playing bit. sports or, yeah. yeah um um so i was we evelyn and i were recently in a social situation where we had um a male colleague who was relentlessly mansplaining um everything in the universe to us right <laughs> yeah. and and a second male colleague who will henceforth be a superhero in my book <laughs> came in and basically just took over the interaction with this person who was being really hostile. And he was like, <laughs> I think his, his quote was, have you ever heard of the term mansplaining? <laughs> and he, li he literally mansplained mansplaining to this guy just to, to stop him in, in his tracks. And I, I, I feel like that's an important, and the reason why I tell this story is because I, that is such a simple way um, for, for men to, to, to jump in and be like, yo, bro, hold it. You're not being equitable right now. You're actually being pretty hostile and awful. Um, and he did this in a way that was really calm and really polite, uh, but it was calling out the crap as he saw it. And I feel like that that is a really, um, like you need to do that. And then another incident was in our own lab where there was no mansplaining that even happened. And later, I, one of my colleagues, who was a man, emailed me to like make sure... Oh, he actually came up to me personally and, and was like, I'm so sorry if you thought I was mansplaining. And I had no idea what he was talking about because he is a, a lovely person and I could never... I would never use that word to describe any interaction I've had with him or could imagine that. Um, but he reflected and was like, I may have been offensive. He was not and has never been. But um, and he went out of his way to apologize or at least to make sure that, you know, let me know, like, hey, I'm aware of this. 
I apologize if I've done this before and I will do better in the future. Of course, there was, I, I want to reiterate because this person is wonderful that there was no room for improvement there. But those are like simple ways to check in and, and like, am I being maybe a little bit biased or am I being offensive? And like, make sure that you're like, it's not hard to just check in and make like, would I do this with a male colleague? Um, and I think that'll, you know, I'd like to expect the best of people, but sometimes we do things that are, we all do things that are, you know, rather unintelligent and rather rude and to correct them as we see them is kind of important. So anyway, I just wanted to insert those two stories. <laughs> I feel like a lot of the time it's, us like thankfully we had you know our colleague that stepped up up for us but most of the time it's us that defend ourselves so with him and and with your um lab mate they knew and they were aware to like watch out for that kind of stuff yeah but what do you do with people who aren't aware that they're doing it yeah and i think too like for men to have this conversation without women in the room is really an important because it's not our job to teach you not to mansplain. It's your job to figure out how to not, how to be a decent person. Like that's the responsibility doesn't fall on your female colleagues. Um, and there are a few men in, in that I work with that go out of their way to spend their spare time or their free time helping other men learn like this is not a way to behave um, and that you are engaging in these, in actions that reinforce these implicit biases. Um, and like, just, just, just do that. Like, if you see that happening, it's important that you calmly and call it out, you know, um, because we get, you know, I think it's fine that if, for women who are being attacked to be hostile, because we are being, having hostility forced upon us. Um, but for men who aren't doing that, like, as you're an innocent bystander, like calm, um, calm ways in which to like combat that those are important because people engage with that more right and i'm not asking women who are being attacked to to shoulder that burden but men should <laughs> um because they benefit from the same that that sexism so they should be working on tearing it down and so at the end of the day we may think that we're done with all this challenging stuff and we're ready to go home and relax but that is totally false because there are issues that are woman specific that we have to consider, especially um, being in grad school in our 20s and 30s. Um, starting a family is definitely an issue. And as a disclaimer, none of us, none of the hosts are pregnant or ever have had children, so we can't speak to issues specifically from that. Um, but we all certainly have thought about what this means for our future with our partners and families. For me in particular, so um, culturally, like, you know, I come from a very big family. I envisioned myself, maybe not having a big family, but, you know, I envisioned myself having a, ch a child or two. I don't know. But I feel like I'm almost, I don't know if shamed is the word, but it seems like because I'm now in uh, doing grad school and stuff, like, this isn't something I should talk about. Like, I should only think about school 24-7. And I almost feel kind of shamed for even thinking about starting a family and then I think about well where should I even begin like if I want to have a child when should I have a child like do I do it during grad school but what about advancement what about 
field seasons as ecologists. Like, what am I supposed to do? Like, am I supposed to plan to have my child, like, pop right after field season? Like, <laughs> and I mean, okay, and then if I think about, all right, well, then I'll wait until after my PhD. But then after my PhD, there's no guarantee of a job. Will I be in a postdoc? What's, what's my next job going to say if I go into my postdoc pregnant? And this isn't something that was ever discussed during recruitment, like, and, and not just even having a child, but also like work-life balance with your family or with your significant other. Like, what does that look like? Um, managing research with ma like trying to, I don't know, have a life outside of research. Yeah, jumping back to the field work thing, we kind of did like the back of the envelope calculation where field season is like three or four months out of the year and pregnancy is nine months. So, I mean, <laughs> it, are you just going to do your field season and then magically conceive and then be ready for the next field season, even though you just gave birth like a few months ago? And what a stressful way to like plan, plan your own personal life. It's like, that's. Yeah, especially because, you know, most women don't get pregnant the first time that no, they try and, you like, know. Oh, that month went by, like, <laughs> like guess oh. I only have two months to prepare for all of this now. <laughs> like, <just> yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that these are, the, you know, these are barriers that happen in a lot of fields outside of science. Um, but I think science in particular can be really an, an inhospitable place to be a, a young woman wanting to have a family. And... Yeah, I would say the uncertainty and like lack of transparency sometimes. Um, we were discussing parental leave um, in our university system, which is four weeks, but that might vary depending on your lab and your resources and your Which is four resources. weeks is nothing. Right. Four <laughs> weeks is nothing to begin with. And, and so there's a lot of just uncertainty that like really prevents you from planning. And then the lack of transparency also has a very similar effect. Um, so we definitely encourage graduate departments to try and be as transparent about that information as possible. Include it in your grad student handbooks or your policies um, or the website that you maintain for your department. Even consider putting it in the offer letter because that might make a difference for some of your students that are looking. Um, some of your some of the people you're looking to recruit might have their mind changed because that's upfront. Yeah. So we've offered a glimpse into some of the challenges that face women every day in almost every aspect of their lives. Um, and we haven't even touched on other issues like intersectional issues, Evelyn. Yeah, a lot of the issues I face, I don't know if it's because I'm a woman or because I'm Latina or whatever, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I feel like a lot of women of color face a lot of um, layers to what's happening and it's hard to know why it's happening to you. Yeah, so that that's something we haven't touched on, but that's certainly something to consider with all of these issues. Um, and if you are interested in diversity topics, we do have a podcast where we cover that. Um, but for now, we're definitely going to wrap this up with some of the solutions we've sprinkled throughout and just also a call for men to be allies um, and not just to say you're an ally, um, but to actually do things that really make a difference. Um, speaking of is huge. I cannot tell you the number of times I've sat there um, knowing that if I said something, it really wouldn't have the same impact as if one of my male friends had said something. And um, just doing that, it seems 
maybe intimidating a little bit, but just imagine how much more intimidating it is for a woman. So stepping in makes a huge difference. All right, so tune into the next episode of Turn of the Tide.